The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to see, first of all, who were the Ephesians, all right? We're going to start by kind of looking at some of the city of Ephesus. We're going to study some of the details there, and then we'll look at the people of Ephesus, and I believe this will give us some context for what we're looking at today. In order to kind of help us understand who were the Ephesians, and the, the reason we're going to do this is because oftentimes, as you read the Scripture, as you read your Bible, if you don't know who these books were written to, if you don't understand the historical and sociological context, you can misinterpret what it is the original authors intended with their message. And so we're going to take a few minutes this morning just to kind of set a backdrop for us as to who these people were, who exactly was Paul writing to, and why was he writing to. Ephesus is the main focus here of Paul's third missionary journey. He, of course, went on three. Uh, He spent most of his time in Ephesus on that third journey. And uh, Ephesus, in all reality, was a a world-class city, Uh, much like maybe London, England, or Manhattan, or uh, some other city around the world, just a huge, vibrant city. It was politically powerful, and it was financially wealthy. Uh, Even in ancient times, it had a huge population uh, that boasted 300,000 people, and especially for 2,000 years ago, a huge city by anybody's definition. I believe the map is going to come up on the screen, but uh, it was located just off the Aegean coast uh, there in what is now modern-day Turkey. And so you can literally go right now to the ruins of Ephesus, and it's just an, an incredible, incredible sight. Ephesus itself lies in a valley. It's protected by steep hills on either side of the city. Uh, In fact, as we'll see in a moment, the temple of Artemis sat up on one of these hills here. And uh, it would guard the city from enemy attacks. The valley also added to the beauty of the location. Um, In Ephesus, there are many ancient landmarks whose ruins can be seen even today. In fact, uh, Ephesus is really a modern-day tourist attraction. There are more ancient ruins in the city of Ephesus than in any location around the globe. It's just filled with all types of archaeological history, and so we're going to take just a moment to look at a few of those. Inside your service program, there's a little map in there, and if you want to use that map, we're going to kind of work our way through the map as we uncover some of these kind of archaeological ruins that kind of sets the stage for exactly who were these people. One of the biggest, probably, ancient ruins found there in Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis, or uh, as the Romans referred to her, Diana. Uh, The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Its original columns were over 90 feet high. Now, just to give you some perspective on this, those of you who have seen pictures or been to the Washington Memorial, not the Washington, I'm sorry, the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., literally this building would be twice the height of the Lincoln Memorial and twice as deep. So it's just a massive, massive building. The Temple of Artemis was uh, uh, destroyed after a certain uh, manner of time, and it was rebuilt again there in Ephesus. Artemis was the goddess of childbirth and women. Uh, Prostitution and sexual promiscuity played a major part in the worship of this pagan deity. It was a city here in Ephesus that was extremely pagan and filled with all types of sorcery, witchcraft, and occult-like activities. 
when the original temple was destroyed, they replaced it with another one that was a little bit smaller. You can see the ruins of this one here uh, to this day. That one was destroyed and it was been said based on local records that the Christian influence was so great by the time it was destroyed this time that uh, they never actually rebuilt it. And I think there's an incredible lesson there that even in the midst of paganism, uh, even in the midst of much immorality, in the, in the midst of witchcraft and all kinds of sorcery, here the church in Ephesus was able to make such a profound impact in the midst of all of that, that by the time this temple was destroyed, Christian influence was so big, it was so rampant, nobody wanted to build it back up again. I mean, think about that. The fact that here are these just major icons of worldliness and carnality, and yet because the Christians had such a powerful influence in their city, it was never rebuilt after that time. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if as Christians we had such an impact, if we had such an influence in our community that it literally changed the way our community functioned at its, at its very core, at its very essence. And, and that's what the Christian community had. That's the impact it was able to, able to make on early Ephesus. Um, the Colosseum located in central Ephesus could hold literally 25,000 people. And uh, in a city of 300,000, they would need places where they could gather uh, the city together. This is an actual picture of the ruins that you could go to today. Uh, this is um, some 2,200 uh, years old, fitting 25,000 people. They would do civic events. Uh, they would do entertainment events. Uh, they would have political events here in the Colosseum Theater located in central Ephesus. What's interesting about this place is, as we're going to see in a moment, uh, the Bible actually talks about this place. In latter parts of Acts chapter number 19, we're going to find where literally Paul goes to this Colosseum uh, that we can go to today and literally uh, is trying to make a force, uh, an impact for the cause of Jesus Christ at this very place. We're going to read about it in about 10 minutes here from now. The agoras, or what the ancient Grecians called agoras, were public spaces used for assemblies, markets, and civic gatherings, all right? Much like our malls would be today, and I think actually we skipped a picture. This right here is what is called a Terence housing, and uh, these homes, they're basically mansions that archaeologists are starting to uncover now, and uh, these Terence housing, they literally built an entire uh, dome around these two mansions as uh, archaeologists now are excavating these mansions. And as they're uncovering these things, they're finding that uh, the Ephesian people were highly advanced, even technologically. As they were going through these ruins, specifically the terrace, uh, the terrace housing here, uh, they found that uh, they had running water in many of these homes. Uh, there was central heating, literally. Uh, they would have heat that would go into different parts of the homes. This is over 2,000 years ago. And believe it or not, they even had a public uh, sewage system. And so there were restrooms and sewage. We're talking to, they were talking uh, uh, the time of Jesus Christ and all these types of things. I, I think we even, and if you'll notice on your map, uh, you'll see the uh, various bathhouses or things there or what they would refer to as the public restrooms. And uh, I think you'll see these. These are literally public restrooms in Ephesus. Now, I want you to take a close look at them because you'll find something fairly awkward here. They're somewhat similar to ours here today. I, anybody notice something missing? <laughs> Say stalls. Here's why. 
In ancient Ephesus, uh, public restrooms were places for social gathering. All right? I mean, it was the original social network right here, all right? And so here we had, they would sit there and they, they, they would use their togas as covering as they would use these public restrooms. There was public sewage and it'd be swept away and it was very modern uh, and yet stalls had not yet quite been invented. So at some point, uh, somebody thought that that might be a good idea. While this is awkward for sure, uh, it is historically interesting nonetheless. One of the things that makes Ephesus so unique, it was a harbor city located just off the Aegean Sea and uh, it was the place where many of the highways began uh, there into Asia Minor. You can see here, this is what's called Harbor Road. And so this was a massive highway that led right out of the harbor into Asia Minor. And I believe it's one of the reasons why Paul strategically chose the city of Ephesus to go to. There were many trade routes. There were many highways. It was centrally located. And he would be able to advance the gospel in a very strategic manner from the city of Ephesus here. Uh, I believe, I don't know if we've got the pictures, the, the library of Celsus here is one of the most beautiful restored facilities. On the outside facade, it looks like it's two stories. On the flip side, you'll find that it was in fact a three-story library. It was huge at the time of its use. 12,000 scrolls uh, were used inside this particular building and it was a library where people would go to read and it was a very educated and enlightened city in, in many, stretch, many uh, senses of the word. Ephesus also served as a major banking center of the ancient world, much like Wall Street would have been today. Uh, there were banks, there was commerce, there was trade, and so a lot of the banking that took place was centered right here in Ephesus. Uh, there was also a lot of higher education that existed there, colleges, uh, uh, education facilities. One institute that we know of called the School of Tyrannius uh, was somewhat of like a local community college or a community university. University that existed there. You'll also read about that uh, in Acts chapter number 18 and Acts chapter number 19. Paul will actually use the school of Tyrannus there to teach and to disciple the next generation of believers there in the city of Ephesus. Christian history tells us that the apostle John, uh, who wrote one of Jesus' disciples uh, wrote uh, some of the scriptures here, actually lived here for some time as well as Luke. Now, we don't know this from sure, sure from the scripture, but as we study history, um, of course, we're all familiar that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, uh, he entrusted the care of his mother Mary to John. And so many historians believe that when John came here to Ephesus, he brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him to Ephesus. And, and uh, as kind of tradition goes, some believe this was even the very home of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so there's a lot of history. Some of it is more just kind of secular history. And yet as we dive through it, we find that Ephesus is a city that is very rich in history, rich in much of the material wealth. And yet spiritually, they were absolutely bankrupt. A city of witchery, of sorcery, of occult activity. There was a bunch of paganism. And yet it's here that Paul decides to dive in. It's here that Paul decides to go to and really proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and, uh, which is more time than any city he ever visited. There, were, there would be no time, that, there would be no place he would spend more time at than at to the city here in Ephesus. It appears from the best we can tell that Paul wrote the bulk of his correspondence from Ephesus. So when you read books like 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, he literally penned those books from the city of Ephesus. And, and even as you go to the end of 2 Corinthians, when he says, hey, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, who's the church at Ephesus is at, he says, uh, they greet you. And, and so we have by kind of even biblical example, we know that many of these books were written from the uh, city of Ephesus. And so we see a little bit of who these Ephesians were through the city of Ephesus. But not only are we going to look at here the city of Ephesus, but let's take some time to look at the people of Ephesus, all right? And so if you go, if you would, with me to Acts chapter number 18 and 19, this is going to be our first real glimpse into Ephesus as a city, Ephesus as a people. And so I'm just going to kind of start marching through uh, the passage here a little bit. The Bible says in Acts chapter number 19, verse 1, it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, notice this, came to Ephesus. So this is actually going to be his second time to the city of Ephesus. In Acts chapter number 18, you're going to find that he stops by just for a real quick trip and drops off Aquila and Priscilla. That's where the church at Ephesus began to meet, in their home. Uh, Timothy was going to be the pastor at the church of Ephesus. The church at Ephesus was one of the most influential churches in early uh, church history. Some theologians believe that its uh, church membership grew to somewhere around 100,000 individuals. Timothy did an incredible job at spreading the gospel through the city of Ephesus into the churches of Asia Minor. Some people may or may not be aware, but this church at Ephesus was a multi-site church. It did not meet in one central location. It met in several different locations. And so it was one church at Ephesus that met in several different uh, locations there, and that's how they were able to facilitate this incredible growth that existed here in the early church, where literally tens of thousands of people are coming to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Notice here, uh, he uh, comes to verse 8, and it says, he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months. So, according to the Bible, there was actually a synagogue, a Jewish temple that existed in the city, this pagan city of Ephesus. And what was interesting is a few years ago, uh, they actually found kind of uh, marks of this synagogue actually existing. Archaeologists for many years wondered if what the scripture said was indeed true, and they found remnants of this synagogue that existed to the day, validating what Acts chapter number 19 declares, that there was one even in a Grecian city like uh, Ephesus here. There were Jewish kind of uh, culture and ethnic people from that background who existed there. Notice verse number nine. The Bible says, and when divers or multitudes of people were hardened and believed not, but he spake, uh, but they spake evil of, notice this, that way before the multitude. This might be interesting to some of you. Um, at this time in history, uh, the believers were not referred to as Christians. Um, in fact, they were first called Christians. Does anybody know in what city? Antioch, okay, that's where they were first referred to as Christians. Uh, before that time, uh, these people were simply referred to as the way. The way. 
Right? So when people would talk about him, they would say the way, where Jesus declares he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we see here in this passage, he says the multitudes were hardened and believed not, while there were some who were saved, as we saw earlier in verse number two, but spake evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them. Verse 23 talks about the way as well. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way or the way. And so here's the way of life, the way of abundant life. And that's just what people referred to them as. They didn't know what to call them. They didn't know how to label them. And so it's the people of the way. And, and that comes from, of course, Jesus' sayings where he declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so before they were called Christians, they were simply referred to as the way. And so we see that in verses number nine and 10. Notice verses number 11. And God brought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Notice this, verse 12. So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the disease departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. The book of Acts is a very transitional book. As we see from Hebrews chapter number one, that God gave signs to the Jews, special signs that were reserved for such a time as this, so that the Jews would know that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And so some of these signs are demonstrated here in one and two, literally to the point where people were taking handkerchiefs. They were taking the coat. They were taking literally the outer garments of Paul. They would take them to the sick. And the Bible declares that when they would touch literally those aprons, these people would be healed validating the reality that what Paul was teaching was indeed the word of God. According to 1 Corinthians, those sign gifts to the Jews, they ceased. They no longer continued. But for this time, it was that which validated the reality that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, God, come in the flesh. Notice as we keep moving down here, verse 19, many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. So these books, these uh, occultish artifacts, uh, these things that were used in their rich craft and in their pagan worship, these Christians who were being saved, who were coming to Christ, who were experiencing the revival here at Ephesus, they took these things that the Holy Spirit of God was convicting their heart about, and they literally had a massive bonfire in Ephesus. I mean, they just lit these things up. In fact, notice what it says as you keep reading here in verse number uh, 20, uh, verse uh, 19, I'm sorry. Uh, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver. So of all the things that they brought to have burned in today's currency, this would be roughly about half a million dollars worth of things. And they're literally not selling them, they're burning them. Half a million dollars, just, just destroying them. They want nothing to do with their past life. Well, those things, though they had value, uh, though they were something that had uh, uh, financial worth to them, uh, they realized they were part of something old and now they were new in Christ. And so literally half a million dollars worth of items and artifacts and idols and pagan uh, artifacts literally burned right there in front of them. Verse 24, there was a certain man named Demetrius, 
a silversmith which made silver shrines for Diana. Now, Diana is the Roman term for Artemis. They're kind of interchangeable. Of course, uh, we know uh, here that uh, as the Bible is written, uh, it's written here uh, in a way uh, in in, uh, Greek. And so we see here that here was a man, Demetrius, uh, who made silver shrines. So literally his his well-being, his job was to make these little pagan idols that people would bring to their homes and they would worship it. Now, now he's getting a little disturbed. You say, why is Dimitri getting disturbed? You know, what, what's, what's wrong? All his business is going away. Not only are people not buying his stuff, uh, they're literally destroying it. They're making these public demonstrations of destroying the very things he's pouring his life into. So we see here, it goes on to say, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. So he, he pulls all the guys together. Everybody in the city of Ephesus who, who builds and makes these shrines and idols to Diana and Artemis. He called together, verse 25, the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. He's basically saying, guys, this is how we make our money. This is how we make our livelihood. This is how we eat. This is how we live. Verse 26, moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. He's saying this Paul, he's literally telling everybody that this is false, that this is a false religion, that this is paganism, and people are believing him. They're turning to the way. They're turning to Jesus Christ. A revival of epic proportions now is beginning to break out in this pagan city of Ephesus. And so we see what's taking place. So now verse 29. The whole city was filled with confusion. So now there's a riot. There's an uprising that begins to take place because uh, Demetri gets his, Demetrius gets a bunch of the craftsmen together. They start stirring up the people here, verse 29. And when the whole city was filled with confusion, having caught, notice this, Gaius and Aristarchus, I'm sorry, uh, men of Macedonia, Paul's companion in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater, all right? And so as you'll notice there on your notes, the theater is the one we refer to, the 25,000 folks uh, that could fit in that particular theater. And they stay, take here, and they take two of Paul's disciples, and now they're dragging them into this theater Basically to, to, to kill them, all right? They're going to make a public example of these two disciples. Uh, as you keep reading, you'll find that Paul tries to rush in and rescue these two guys. Now you can just imagine, Paul, as you get to know him, the guy's just pretty brash. He's pretty intense. And, and, and he's, here he is, 25,000 people, and Paul's going to go in and rescue these two guys, you know? Well, some of the other disciples say, Paul, I, I don't know if you're thinking right right now, this is probably not a good idea. They're literally physically constraining him, and Paul's like, no, I got to go get them. I'm going in there, and they're constraining him. And so what happens here, let's go to verse number 35. The town clerk kind of comes in, verse 35, and when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter. Notice this things. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. All right. Uh, he goes on to say in verse 38, he says, wherefore if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any, the law is open and there are deputies. Let them instead plead and plead with one another. And he goes on to basically say, guys, 
If we don't cool it, all right, we're going to get in some massive trouble, all right? This, it's, not a, it's not a good thing, you know, to have riots in your city. We're going to get busted. And so the town clerk is able to come along, and he literally quiets the quiets the riot down. And so then two of uh, Paul's disciples were able to sneak out of there and they were kind of set, ready, ready to go. So that kind of gives us background on the city of Ephesus, kind of what it's made of. We get our first glimpses into the people of Ephesus here and it really helps us to understand to some degree who were these Ephesians. Now, Four years have passed. That was in about AD 58, the relate story I just related, the uh, facts, the, the details that were just shared. That's about AD 58. This is somewhere about, you know, 25 to 30 years after the time that Jesus had uh, been crucified and rose from the dead. And so now all of a sudden here, Paul, four years after this, AD 62, now he is going to write a letter to the Ephesians, all right? And uh, we find this. He is now a prisoner in Rome, uh, many miles away, and he writes a letter here back to the church at Ephesus whose pastor is Timothy. Now, there are a couple of reasons why Paul writes this letter, all right? It's been four years since he's been there. They're in the midst of a lot of paganism. They're in the midst of a lot of idolatry. They live in a world that is worldly and carnal. And here's this church right in the middle of it. And, and I know some of you think, oh, California is horrible and, and America is really going to hell in a handbasket. And in a lot of ways, we need to be praying for our country. And I hope you do. But I'm telling you what, compared to Ephesus, I mean, it, this, is, this is crazy, all right? This is just a wicked, pagan, horrible city. And yet there was a church that was starting to make a difference and make an impact. And so four years later, Paul writes this letter. And one of his goals is just to encourage them. To say, hey, let's stay strong in the grace that is in, that's yours in Christ Jesus, you know? And uh, just trying to encourage them to, to allow Christ to live through them in the midst of this wicked, carnal uh, world in which they find themselves in. The second reason why he writes this letter is because uh, there was some division that was beginning to take place in the church. Now, I know it's hard for you to believe, but even back in this day and age, uh, there was division, disunity within the church. And uh, you say, well, I, I thought that just happened now. No, that's kind of been a lot, you know, and so it's something that's regularly having to be addressed. And so Paul writes the Ephesians, uh, book of Ephesians, partly to address this. The question arose there at the church of Ephesus as to which race was superior in the Christian faith. I mean, after all, the Jews thought, hey, we're God's chosen people. Aren't we more superior? Shouldn't, shouldn't we have more of the leadership? On the other hand, the people who were non-Jews or what is often referred to as Gentiles, they thought this is our city. You know, Paul came to us. We should have superior, you know, superiority in our church in this place. And there's some just division as to which faith, what, which national ethnic background was superior here uh, in the Christian faith. So this letter engages on a very real way the subject of racism in some very, very real ways. And, and even, even to this day, you know, there, we live in a world that, that's torn by racism. And how, how do these things come together? And I honestly believe that the answer to racism in the day and age in which we live is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me explain why. Paul encourages unity by helping the Ephesian church understand that their primary identity is no longer rooted in their ethnic background. So Paul is going to say, hey, it's not about being Jew. It's not about being a Gentile. We might say today, it's not about being black. It's not about being white. He's like, those things are secondary identities. And so what Paul comes along and he says, hey, you have a new identity. And Paul encourages them to find their new identity in something greater rather than finding their identity in their natural 
ethnic background, rather than finding their identity in the color of their skin, rather than finding their primary identity by their ancestry. Paul comes along and says, those are secondary identity factors. If we're going to see unity take place where racism is starting to rip the church apart, then we've got to get back to the gospel and we need to understand that our identity is not primarily rooted in the color of our skin, that our identity is not primarily rooted in our ethnic background or in our ancestry, but that our primary source of identity is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and in who his gospel declares us to be. That is where all of a sudden unity begins to take place. That's where the walls of division come down when we don't look to these smaller things as being those things that inform our identities, but rather letting the gospel of Jesus Christ be that which informs our deepest understanding of who we are. So the letter of the Ephesians really answers this question, who am I? Because when he was asking this question, there were people who would say, I'm a Jew, the chosen people of God. The one who he sent the Messiah through, we're Gentiles, we're enlightened, we're educated, we're te- technologically advanced. And Paul says, no. You're not Jew, you're not Gentile. You're in Christ. You're in him. And the book of Ephesians begins to lay the groundwork on where we should look for the primary source of our identity. You see, as human beings, we often go to the social sciences to tell us who we are. That is, somebody might say, I'm an extrovert. Somebody else may say, I'm, I'm an introvert. And we look to the social sciences to kind of define who we are. <laughs> somebody might say, I'm a, I'm a right brain thinker. Somebody else might say, I'm a, I'm a left brain thinker. So somebody may say, I'm, I'm, more, of a, I'm more of a feeler. <laughs> Other person, I'm more of a, I'm more of a thinker. Some people may look to the social sciences and read the books. I'm, I'm a firstborn. I'm a baby. And so these things inform how we behave and how we live. Uh, we might look to something like the Meyer Briggs personality test to inform who we are. You know, am I a sanguine? Am I choleric? Am I melancholy? Am I phlegmatic? You know, and we look to these things to define who we are. Some people might ask, uh, you know, they might say, I have an alpha-type personality. We've heard that term before, kind of an alpha-type personality. Somebody may say, I've got more of a laid-back personality. Somebody may say, I've got an addictive personality. And, and there are all these things that the social sciences use to try to help us understand who we are. But I want to say this, and I hope you'll get this. While these things might help to explain you, they do not define you. As a believer in Christ, you are no longer defined by your personality. You are no longer defined by your performance or by your behaviors or by your habits. You are no longer defined merely by the color of your skin or your ethnic background. You are no longer primarily defined by your ancestry or your heritage. You are no longer defined by how much money you have in the bank. You're no longer primarily defined by how talented, how gifted, how resourceful you are. You're not defined by how long or how short you've been a believer. You're no longer defined by these lesser things because the Bible declares that in Christ, 
Christ, you are defined by who he declares you to be and at your very core and at your very essence, we must surrender and allow the word of God and his grace and his gospel be the primary source of informing the identity of who we believe ourselves to be and we must choose, do I believe what the social sciences tell me that I am or do I believe who God tells me that I am? If you want to write something down, this might help. There are three places that people tend to find their identity from. The first place most people look to is themselves. And I'll say this. This is probably the worst place to find your identity. You look to your performance. You look to your behaviors. You look to your physical appearance to inform who you are. You, you look to your, uh, your ability to gain wealth. You look to yourself to inform who you are. And I'm going to say this. If you're the type of person who looks inward, if you look to yourself, if that's where you get your primary source of identity, I'm telling you what, you're probably a miserable person. You're probably insecure. You probably struggle. Because the worst place you can go to to find your identity is yourself. But we do it, don't we? I'm tall, I'm short, I'm fat, I'm skinny, I'm popular, I'm not popular, I'm rich, I'm poor. As long as you look to yourself for information as to who you authentically are, you're gonna be miserable. It's the worst place to look within. Another place that people often get their identity from is one, yourself, secondly, from others. Uh, sociologists would refer to this as the social mirror. You find your identity in who people around you tell you you are. <laughs> He's handsome. She's beautiful. He's fat. <laughs> She's ugly. You take cues, social cues, and they're not always verbal. Sometimes they're insinuated. Sometimes they're communicated through body language. But you take your cues, your identity from the social world, from the people around you. You let your mother, your father, your son, your daughter, your coworker, your pastor, a million people to, t- to tell you, to inform you as to who you are. And you allow that to be the primary influence in your life of finding your self-image. I'm going to say this. While it's not always the worst, it's, it's pretty bad. Because people's opinions are highly fickle. They're up and down and back and forth and left and right. They're just fickle. They might be right, but they're probably not. Here's the third place. And probably the best place to find your identity. And that is in God. Allowing God in his word to tell you who you are. And that is what this series is all about. We're going to deconstruct and we are going to put down what the world and the social mirror and even ourselves try to tell us who we are. And we're going to ask ourselves from this book, who am I? You see, Ephesians really is a book that's all about finding who God declares you to be. And until you firmly are convinced of who God believes you to be, you're going to have a very hard time living the Christian life. Because you will not be able to live a life that's inconsistent with who you believe yourself to be. 
So you're going to try to live up here to what God declares you to be. But if you believe the social mirror, if you believe what somebody tells you you are, rather than believing this word, your identity is going to have more influence and more pull on your behavior and on your habits than God's word was because you're not believing his word. You're not believing what he says about you to be true. And so first and foremost, Ephesians is a book that helps us to discover our true, authentic identity in Christ. The term in Christ appears 12 times in this book of Ephesians. Its variations, such as in him or in whom we have life, its variations occur another 20 times. So here in this little book of just a couple of chapters, over 30 times we are declared to be in Christ. I don't have time to do it this morning, but just reading the first seven, eight verses of the book of Ephesians, and you will find again and again, in Christ, in Christ, in him, in whom, in Christ, again and again and again, we are going to see that the apostle Paul is trying to help the Ephesians and this church recognize that, hey, if you're going to live, if Christ is going to live through you, you have to believe what Christ says about you to be true because your behavior flows from your beliefs. Chapters number one, two, and three of the book of Ephesians is all about your beliefs. Chapters four, five, and six will start to go into your behavior. You know, where chapters one, two, and three is about our convictions that we should have in Christ. Chapters four, five, and six will be uh, kind of just the commitment or the living out of our faith in Christ. Literally for three chapters, if you study and dice this book right, you're going to find very little that Paul tells the church to do. In chapters 1, 2, and 3. There's not a whole lot. Because he's just trying to deep root and help them understand. This is who you are. 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 And until he finally feels like he's been able to convince this church who they are. Then he'll start to say this is what it looks like when you really believe that. This is how it manifests itself when you really understand that. Oh, what a wonderful testimony. I want to give you some perspective here. The term Christian only appears three times in the entire New Testament. When we call ourselves Christians, and literally it only occurs three times in the Bible. The term in Christ occurs 216 times in the Word of God. Twelve of those times being in the book of Ephesus. So who are you? If you are a believer, if you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, you are first and foremost in Christ. You say, what does that mean? That's what this series is about. Over the next few weeks, we are going to unpack what it means to be in Christ. What is it to be in Christ? What does that look like? What does it mean? Oh, Colossians 2 tells us, and ye, you are, get this, complete in Christ. Do you ever feel like you're not adequate? Do you ever have moments like you feel like I'm not enough? I gotta be more for my marriage. I gotta be more for my family. I gotta be more for my church. I gotta be more as a Christian. I gotta do this and do that and do all these things. I, I don't have what it takes. To, and I'm gonna say this. As a matter of fact, you do have what it takes. You're complete. Everything you need for life and godliness already exists in you because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. It exists within you right now. 
all power that you need to be the wife, the mother, the husband, the father, the coworker, the church member. It's not like, God, you've got to give me something. No, it's there. In Christ, it's there. You're complete. You're never going to get more of Jesus. More. It's there. So how do we flesh it out? <laughs> That's what this series is about, our identity. Who, who are we? You're not inadequate. You're complete in Christ because Jesus truly is our all in all. Let me say this. In Christ, you are loved as Jesus is loved. In Christ, you are blessed as Jesus is blessed. In Christ, you are chosen as Jesus was chosen. In Christ, you are accepted as Jesus was accepted. In Christ, you are affirmed as Jesus was affirmed. In Christ, you are unspotted as Jesus is unspotted. In Christ, you are blameless as Jesus is blameless. In Christ, you are righteous as Jesus is righteous. In Christ, you are unstained as Jesus is unstained. And in Christ, you are adored as Jesus is adored. That is your authentic, true identity in Christ. Don't let the enemy rob you of that biblical, spiritual reality. That is who you are. And when the world tries to tell you something different, and when your heart tries to tell you something different, cast it down for the lie that it is, because you are complete in Christ. Because of what Christ has done, and because of who Christ is, if you have Christ, if you've accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior and put your faith and trust in him and him alone, you are ultimately in Christ. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna dive into what it really means to be in Christ and learn what we possess, the riches of our inheritance, what we have in Christ as we go verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, asking ourselves, who am I? We're going to cast down the lies that the world, the flesh, and the devil try to throw at us, convince us of who we are, and we're going to elevate the reality of who God says you now are in Christ. You won't want to miss a week. I believe this with every ounce of my being. This will probably be the most encouraging series that I've done as a pastor since being here at Ambassador Baptist Church. I think, I think it's going to encourage your heart. I think it's going to help you. But let's start to understand start to reorient our minds to the fact that first and foremost, my identity is not rooted in my ethnic background, in the color of my skin, is not rooted in how much money I do or do not have, my physical appearance, but first and foremost, your identity is rooted in who God says you are in his son, Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we love you.